0: Welcome to a special edition of One Other Thing, the official podcast of Virtua Physician Partners. I'm your host, Dan Master. In this episode, we're going to be doing something a little different. We are presenting VPP's annual meeting for 2019, which was held at the Barry D. Brown Health Education Center on October 24th. We thought we'd feature this event as an episode in case any of you could not attend, Or, if you did attend and wanted to refer back to some part of the evening to your colleagues, you can do so with the upcoming conversations. So, as you're listening, just keep in mind that this was a live taping, and that there was a slide deck that accompanied many of the presentations. Since this was a live taping, we identified key points of the night and included them in the show notes. So, if you want to see exactly when, for example, Dr. Blaber spoke or when Tarun Kapoor spoke, you can refer to the notes to see which minutes their portions are located. If you'd like to receive the slide deck that went along with the presentations, you can reach out to me at, dmaster at virtua.org. As soon as I receive your message, I will send you the presentation so you can follow along. In terms of the layout of what you're about to hear, you'll first hear from Tarun Kapoor, who is the president of VPP. Dr. Kapoor is going to introduce Dr. Reginald Blaber, executive vice president of Virtua and former president of Lord's Health System. Dr. Blaber is going to cover his experience with and Vision 4, the industry's transition from fee-for-service to value-based care. And with that, here is Tarun introducing Dr. Blaber.
1: Dr. Blaber, Reg, as he likes to go by, is a uh, cardiologist, uh, practicing cardiologist, has, was the president and CEO of Lord's Health System, and then after the two systems have come together, has now taken over the role as executive vice president and chief clinical officer for the health system. Uh, And in addition to that is going to be the president of Lord's Health Network, who's Donna Antonucci, and she'll be joining us to talk about the experiences of Lord's Health Network, which is now the new sister CIN with virtual physician partners, and explain a little bit of some of their experiences as they've been in in, in the value-based arena for a little bit longer. Uh, But without further ado, uh, I'd like to turn it over to uh, Reg and Donna. Please welcome.
2: Well, good evening, everyone. So my name is Reg Blaber. I I, uh, I did come from Lords. I was the, the, the president of Lords, and and with the acquisition, Virtua got got uh, Lords 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 Camden, Lords Willingboro, our physician networks, and I guess I guess John Matzinger would call me the booby prize, but I'm I'm ha- very happy to be here, and uh, I'm going to talk to you about uh, something that's near and dear to my heart. In fact. I just, uh, I just left Virtua Voorhees talking to all the nurses on the sixth floor talking about how practice being a nurse in 2019 is really hard. There's a great deal of burnout amongst nurses and you know what? There's a great deal of burnout in us. And, and with, uh, with great deference to um, our CFO Bob Sagan I'm going to tell you that I hate fee-for-service. I truly do. I hate fee-for-service. I've hated it for a long time. The incentives are perverse. They're not aligned with our patients. You know, we get paid regardless of the outcomes of our patients. We are pushed to see more and more patients faster and faster and faster. We are, in fact, on a gerbil wheel. And I'm sure that it feels like that every day. How do you know these two people in this slide are actors? Somebody have the courage to tell me. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Eye contact. Yeah, they're making eye contact. The doctor's not looking at the computer. That's what we do now, right? That computer is a barrier between, between us and our patients. So I'd say to you that it doesn't have to be that way. You know, how can we get back to what matters most to our patients—the relationship, that therapeutic bond—not the bond between the computer and the patient, or me and the computer, but me and the patient? I segue to Lord's and his experience in the ACO, not because Lord's decided that they were going to fix that relationship, but because Lord's had to. You see, Lord's Lord's suffered for a long long time for being non-essential in the market. We were great to have, don't get me wrong. You know, especially in cardiology, everybody knew Lord's is a heart hospital. We were great to have. But all the payers knew that you know what, if Lord's closed, people would figure it out and they would go somewhere else because that's really all Lord's was to the payers. And so year after year, Virtua would get great contracts, Cooper would get great contacts, Lords would have a piece of paper pushed across the table at them. Here's your contract, take it. We couldn't really negotiate because we didn't have that essentiality. We were losing in fee-for-service, so we had to do something else. And so what we decided to do was to say, you know what, we believe that quality care does cost less and we're gonna execute on a strategy to take advantage of the fact that for the last 20 years, because our contracts were so meager, we had to become more and more and more efficient, and yet we were able to maintain high quality. And so what we did is we went out and and we took our cadre of, of LMA, Lord's Medical Associates, primary docs, and we went out in the community and we recruited many, many PCPs in the community, and we partnered with them. We said, you know, we're going to provide you incredible analytics, and we're going to be really transparent with that data, and we're going to help you to understand the data so you can change your practice. And so what we did over the ensuing couple of years is we just focused on care improvement, medical reco- med reconciliation, access to care, so powerful. The most powerful thing was SNF utilization. And The best part about sniff utilization was, from being honest, we were taking away from the stiffs. We weren't taking away from ourselves, but along the way, we were very successful at at even curtailing the utilization of carrot lords, which was sort of a problem when you live in a fee for service world. I sort of went back and we said, "Was this the right thing to do?" Um, nonetheless, we were committed to it, and we got national- We got recognized for quality, and we won big in shared savings. We won big, and our physicians won big. I remember going out and handing a very big six-figure check to some of our primary care doctors. Now, I say that not to, not to say that VPP did the, the wrong thing at all. I want to I be clear. We had a necessity. We had to do this. We had to innovate in this field because we were losing it fee-for-service. But we learned a lot. Along the way, and one of the things we learned along the way is that it takes time for an ACO to learn what value-based care really is. And I would just say that for the specialists in the room, you know, they benefited because our our ACO team pushed very hard on our primary care docs to utilize. Our specialists, where appropriate. Yeah, there's the case where the patient needs to go out. I I get that. There are certain cases that need to go across the bridge, no doubt. You do what's right for the patient. But where functionality is equal, where safety is equal, where quality is equal, you stay with the home team. The problem was, is that our docs, they had this check in their hand, but they were still living in two different boats. And it was really hard, because at the same time that they had to hit the 22 Medicare metrics for quality and safety, they also saw the same number of patients every day, albeit with some help from the ACO, the case managers, the social workers, pharmacists, etc. But still, they were driving hard, and as a result, it, it was not easy. It was not easy for them, and I, I, I would even go as far as to say, you know, you know some docs really, said, this isn't working for me. I moved to this slide because this is all a continuum. You know, we're learning every year. The government's learning every year. And ACOs, no matter what you think, are not going away. Value-based purchasing is not going away. HHS and CMS have doubled down on it. This slide is dated. All the way to the right is Q1 2018. If you're in 2019, we're now up to 50, 50 million people that are in ACOs. That's 15% of the population of the United States. Where's the tipping point? You know, in New Jersey, 15% of the population also is, is involved in ACOs. There's 150 ACO contracts that are currently in New Jersey. That's a lot. That's a lot. The market, though, hasn't turned, I'll be honest. It hasn't turned. Um, We're still a fee-for-service, predominantly. Um, We don't know when we're gonna jump from sort of that that tip from one tipping point or from one one side of the curve to the other, but it's gonna happen at some point. And the question is, are you gonna be ready? Because if you're not ready, you're gonna have a really hard time because you have to change the way you think. This is just another way of showing that there are more ACOs being added every year than ACOs going away. So no matter what you read in the paper, no matter what your buddy tells you, ACOs are not going away, nor is bundled payments. And the reason is no matter what happens in Washington DC, and right now Washington DC is still behind value-based care, but no matter what happens there, industry is going to demand that we change the way we offer health care, because they're being crushed by the demands, the healthcare demands, the costs of, of their employees. So how do we move forward? How do we succeed in value-based care? These are my opinions. The first thing is, is that you have to be willing to change the way you think, to change the way you act, to get different results. And what I mean by that is the rules have changed. If you, don't, if you don't realize that the game has changed, and you keep playing to the rules of the old game, you will lose in the new game. For me, it's just focusing on a couple very high-level things. Can your patients get to you when they need you? Be honest. Can they get in the same day? Because if they can't get in the same day, or your nurse who picks up the phone, and this happens to me, it happened to me all the time. I finally had to sit my nurse down. You know, patient's complaining of shortness of breath, complaining of palpitations. Well, be the first thing she said. Go to the ED. The answer I heard many of you say is come right in. That's sort of a new way of thinking because I'm booked, maybe double booked. But I have to figure out in my office how we're going to be able to accommodate that patient so that they stay out of the ED or stay out of the urgent care. Because if they don't, it's going to cost you. Transitions. People have to have soft landings wherever they go in our very complicated healthcare system. But most importantly, you have to understand what happens outside of your office or outside of the hospital when you discharge the patient. You have to know what resources are gonna be available to that patient to keep that patient healthy and well. If you don't, if you don't, that patient's gonna bounce back. And that patient's gonna cost you big, big dollars. And that patient's gonna keep you from being able to transition from seeing 40 patients a day to seeing 30 patients a day and being rewarded the same or more because you have great outcomes. The same goes for care coordination. VPP and, and the Lord's Health Network offer care coordination resources. Use them. Use them not also to understand your data, to understand, and then be willing to change the way you think about that data. And then lastly, optimize to appropriate utilization. Appropriate utilization. Does the patient need to get the surgery done in a hospital? Can it be done in an ambulatory care center? Does the patient need to go across the bridge for that procedure if that procedure is of the same quality and efficacy in New Jersey? I would tell you that that bridge single handedly destroys all ACOs in New Jersey. It really does. It really does. And again, we do a lot of really good things in New Jersey, but there's a couple things that, are, that, that our colleagues in, in Pennsylvania do better than us. But if you're sending a patient over there because you have a relationship with them, you play golf with them, you, you, you're on the sideline of the soccer game with them every, every Saturday, you got to rethink that. you got to rethink it if you want to be successful in the value-based world. If the patient says, I'm only going to Philly, that's an easy one. You're going to Philly. I get that. But after all, we are business partners here. You know, not only is Virtua a business partner with all of you, but you're business partners with everybody to the right and left of you. So what that, what that means is, as primary care doctors, you know, utilize the specialists who've, who've said that they're gonna be on your team, that they're gonna offer you enhanced access, that they're gonna offer you high-quality, low-cost care. If you're a specialist, you see the patients when we ask, maybe even sooner, just to show how, you've, how, how you have changed for your colleagues. But darn it, if you're sending patients into the city and you don't need to, then you ought not be on our team. I'm calling it out. You ought not be on our team. So why should any of this matter to any of us? The first, is risk-based strategies are not going away, they're only advancing, they're only advancing. We're gonna see more two-sided risk models. Right now, we're all participating in a one-sided risk model for the most part. That means that that, that, uh, you win if you decrease the cost of care, but if your cost of care goes up, oh, you're protected. The bad news is is those days are coming to an end. The The government has given us time to practice in, in, in the one-sided model, they're going to be pushing us to the two-sided model. And if we don't participate in the two-sided model, they're going, to, they're going to decrease our fee-for-service dollars so that you're going to have to work harder and harder and harder. The other is industry is mandating more value. I talked to you about how, how their their healthcare costs are going up and up and up. So what's, what's Amazon doing now? What's Walmart doing now? What's Google doing now? They're they're transporting their patients out or their their employees out of our market area to centers of excellence. And here's why they're doing it. They're not doing it. They're not doing it because when they send the patient to the Cleveland clinic, a total joint costs less. Why are they doing it? They're doing it because when they send the patient to the Cleveland clinic, 30% of the time a Cleveland clinic orthopedic surgeon says, you didn't need the surgery. That's what's happening to us. Healthcare is becoming global. And we've got to be ready for it. And then the last, and I would say to me, the most important is that I don't want my income being tied solely to my productivity because if that's the case, then I'm just a plumber. How does a plumber work? They just get paid for as many houses as they can get to in a day. And, and, I don't like that, and I I would bet that most of you don't like that either. I would rather be rewarded for what the patient values. I feel better, Doc. I'm living longer, Doc. I can do the things I want to do. To me, that connects me again with why I got into healthcare in the first place. So I'm here to tell you that Change is hard, this is not gonna be easy. In fact, we're going through the worst part of it right now because we're still living in two boats. So it doesn't feel good and it doesn't feel easy. But now we're 1,300 strong. That's how many of us there are in our, in our clinically integrated network. 1,300 strong, that's amazing. Who would think that we had 1,300 docs 1300 uh, in, in this, this geography alone? but know this, we're only as strong as our weakest link. So if, if 1,200 of us are going along and we're really thinking about how we're gonna improve access and how we're gonna optimize care and care coordination and all the things that Andy's going to, and Don are gonna to talk to you about, those other 100 are gonna drag us down. Why? Because we're business partners, like it or not. This is just Virtua's new footprint with Lords. We pretty much do everything now except bone marrow transplant and maybe treatment of a couple of a, a couple high high complexity cases. We can do most of it right here in South Jersey. Our success together, however, has less to do with what Virtua does than what we decide that we're gonna do together. Together. Primary care, medical subspecialist, OBGYN, surgical subspecialist, and the health system together we are business partners and we're gonna rise or we're gonna fall together but I'm gonna end by saying to go back to why I am bullish on the future of healthcare. I really believe that if that when we get to this place and I don't know when it's gonna happen but when we get to it it's gonna be a better place and so I see it right now as the light at the end of the tunnel but we can only be successful is if we say, you know what, we're in this together, we're gonna do it together, and we're gonna, we're gonna be fully aligned moving forward. So thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you tonight. I guess I should just in- introduce Donna Antonucci. Donna is, is a, a remarkable leader from Lourdes. She, uh, she took the ACO at Lourdes from its infancy and, and uh,
3: really created something special. Donna? Thank you. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit, not about planes, but about the LHS Health Network. And I'm going to tell you not only about our patients, but also about our partners, our physician partners. So um, currently we have 88,000 lives, um, attributed lives, and of them about 19,000 are attributed to Medicare programs. That's both the Medicare Shared Savings Program as well as the Bundled Payment. And um, also, we have 25,000 patients linked to the New Jersey district program. Um, For those of you that aren't familiar with that, that's a state-funded program for um, -for fee-for-service Medicaid recipients and also charity care. And our patients are in um, five counties, so they're they're pretty widespread, and they're all the picture of health, the perfect picture of health. All right, that's a lie. I'm going to tell the truth going forward. Um, Our members, our physician members um, are unique. We have 94 primary care physicians in our ACO and almost 80% of them are independent. We're also supported by over 300 specialists. So we have a lot of people doing a lot of work together and a great deal of collaboration. Our shared savings programs, um, we have several. So we have um, Horizon, Aetna, and AmeriHealth. All three of those programs include both um, commercial and Medicare lives. And then we just started a program this year, um, the Medicare Shared Savings Program, the new pathways to success um, in July. So next I'm gonna talk to you about some of our um, successes, but, but I just have to pause a minute and say, I'm gonna talk about um, the successes. I'm also gonna talk about some of the lessons learned, um, but I'm gonna do it in two slides. And I want you to understand that this is six years of work. I think that's really important to understand takes a great deal of collaboration and time. The nice thing about LHN coming together with Virtua is we've fallen on our face enough that we probably have learned enough lessons that we can be helpful. Um, So so that's something to look forward to, I think. So when we think about um, the pillars of success, it's really three categories that it falls into, um, care coordination, clinical programs, and then provider relations. And I'm not going to talk about all of the things that we've done, but I'm just going to highlight a few. So if you think about care coordination, um, we really started in the ACO with um, what I would consider the basic care of care coordination, which is coaching patients, educating them, um, really being their cheerleader. And when we started that, we started to find that after 90 days working with our population health nurses, we saw a reduction in cost of about $300 a patient. So that really does work, but again, took a great deal of collaboration. The next thing under care coordination I'd like to highlight is documentation integrity, um, which is extremely important. We have a CDI program, clinical documentation nurse, that goes into the practices, works with the providers, gives tip sheets, and really only highlights the areas in primary care and specialty care that are meaningful for the majority of visits coming in. Um, when we started that program, we started to see um, upwards each year of a 3% increase in our risk score. So, um, again, a program that had a, a return on investment. For the um, when we, were, we kind of felt like a um, hamster on a wheel for a while, one patient at a time, right? And I'm sure we all feel like that on a daily basis. Um, really trying to put the proper services around the patient. Started to realize that there were many patients that had some very unique needs. And, um, and that's when we moved on to what we call clinical programs or specialty programs. And there's just two that I think I'm gonna talk about today. One is the SNF extensivist program that um, Dr. Blaber alluded to a bit. Um, what we realized is that in value-based care, SNFs have to be our partners. Um, so again, this is all about collaboration across the board. And what we realized is that we didn't have aligned incentives, right? So in a skilled nursing facility setting, Um, They're paid um, on a daily basis, and and we realized that we really needed to disrupt that a bit. So we started to work with those community providers, put nurses, advanced practice nurses, um, and a program run by a geriatrician in those nursing homes. And um, what we saw immediately with that kind of involvement was a 13% reduction in cost. Um, So the programs, as, as you'll see with LHN going forward and VPP, everything's measured, um, and we keep what works and, and we don't what doesn't work. We don't keep what doesn't work. The other program I'm going to talk about is um, community-based palliative care. Probably one of the biggest needs that we see with the population. And so we have an advanced practice nurse and social work, um, social worker that goes into the patient's homes and looks and talks to them about goals of care and helps to complete a post. Um, and when we're working with patients and helping them decide what their goals are, we see um, with that program again about a six hundred dollar, a six hundred and five dollar um, decrease per member per month. Notice I started to say six hundred in value based care. You don't round anything. Six hundred and five dollars <laughs> is what we saved. Um, and then provider relations. You know one of the most important things that we do, um, which is engaging the practice. Um, Every practice designates a network practice coordinator, a person in the practice that's going to work on quality and work hard with our care coordination teams. Um, And we're there, you know, every step of the way, educating the practices and ensuring that we're giving them what they need to be successful. So when I think about lessons learned, I've talked about some of these things, so I'm just going to highlight a little bit. Um, physician engagement. So this work is hard work. It takes time. We're transforming healthcare In the practice, it's everybody dedicated and collaborating from the front end to the back end and everything in between, whether it's documentation integrity, whether it's access to care. And we started being successful only when the physicians were stepping up and really collaborating in these programs. So, um, again, I would say lots of dedication and physician engagement was key. The other thing, social work and primary care, for the first time we brought that to this market and um, was very exciting and I think um, made a huge difference, and it's key to uh, the success in primary care palliative care is misunderstood even today with a program it's still misunderstood so we have to spend a lot of time trying to really get patients to understand the difference between palliative care and hospice because the physicians totally get it so not all right it's a it's a different concept and so we have to spend more time there proper documentation leads the way And I'll finish with this last one because this is the one that always makes me chuckle, which is um, variation in payer, there's variation in payer reimbursement. So when we got our hands on claims data and realized how much uh, or how different um, payers were paying different individuals, it was eye opening. And I think it blessed the fact that we need to move forward um, transforming care for patients, but transforming the healthcare system so everybody's benefiting from that. Thank you.
4: Thank you, Donna. Appreciate it. Thank you so much.
0: Now, Tarun is going to speak to the year-end review. As you'll hear Tarun say shortly, performance across all payer contracts were a mixed bag, meaning VPP performed very well in some domains. But with increased coordination amongst VPP members, there is an opportunity for even better results. So here's Tarun.
1: So what we're going to do now is uh, what we normally do once a year is we do our year-end review and reflection of, uh, you know, what went well? Where, where are the opportunities to perform differently? And just a reminder: in a uh, you know one of the frustrations that we have in a clinically integrated network and with value-based contract is what we're going to talk about a lot about is what we did in 2018 because there's such a substantial lag between we run out the entire year of performance, then the data starts coming back in, we finalize the data, and then we show it. So so I'm going to go ahead and show here. Th- this is a summary of our, our of our 2018 uh, end end of year, and. And it's a, mixed, it's a mixed bag, right? It's a mixed bag. And the, here's the rationale behind it. So you can see here, just as a real quick recap for those of you especially a little bit newer to, to the models, we have to perform in at least two domains to be successful to, to, to allow for a payout. We have to hit quality metrics, right? We cannot reduce cost by withholding care. So we still have to ha- make sure that our patients are, are still getting appropriate care, which is absolutely the right thing to do. But in addition to that, we have to, to show a decrease in the cost mechanisms. If we are green on both, then the degree to which we're green on both of it influences the, the payment mechanism that comes out. So in our etno whole health contract, which is all the virtual employees that are in it, plus about another thousand folks um, who've purchased it on the marketplace, uh, we did very, very well in quality. We had some degree of decrease in 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 cost. Right, so there will be some dollars available that will go in through through our mechanism for distribution. The other, qual- the other uh, Etna program, which is a commercial product that's sold out in the market, we did very well in quality, but we did not effectively m- bend the needle on that. And and you know we'll talk Andy and Michelle. will talk about it in a little bit the rationale behind it, where we see that w- we learned that our patients, our virtual patients, our virtual employees, interact with the market differently than people who buy Etna on the market. Right, there's a different perception of that, of how they interact with us. Then with regards to AmeriHealth, we actually decreased the cost numbers, but we didn't hit the quality metrics that were set out. Right? And then with Cigna, which is a pretty small contract, it was a mixed bag. So when you know, Michelle and I w- were talking about you know, presenting the data tonight and talking about, more importantly, yes, this is what the data shows, but w- how do we go forward from this? You know, wh- what's going on with here? And, and the positive news in this is that we have actually have the capability to perform. Right? We're, we're able to hit quality metrics. We're able to bend cost curves. But what we're not able to do right now, or not effectively doing right now, is doing it in a synchronized fashion. Right? We, we have the functionality, but we're not lining it up properly. So if we started to think through, okay, how, how should we think about this? An analogy came to our mind, and, and I'm not sure if you know, folks are familiar with um, the book called The uh, Boys in the Boat. As uh, people read it, it a show of hands, um, and if you haven't read it, highly recommend it. There's also a PBS documentary, um, I think the boy, it's called The Boys of 36, about the uh, Washington University Olympic crew that, w- uh, that went and competed in Berlin. A- and I think that's a mechanism that we can start to explore how can we move forward in in, in a different way? And and so I'm going to ask for um, Michelle Frankwitz, our executive director, um, and I'm going to ask for um, Andy Cohen, our medical director, to come up and talk about the next steps and how we want to approach this. Okay, so please welcome Andy and Michelle.
0: At this point in the evening, Tarun turned the mic over to Andy Cohen, Medical Director of VPP, and Michelle Frankowitz, Executive Director of VPP. Andy and Michelle pivoted from Tarun's comments and, as such, presented eight population health strategies that they see as pivotal for VPP to capitalize on its opportunity for improvement. The strategies take the form of a metaphor from sculling a sport in which eight rowers must work synergistically in order to have a seamless stroke and move forward as one. So here are Andy and Michelle's comments.
4: So good evening, everyone. Uh, As Andy and I sat down to uh, prepare our comments for tonight, we drew a great deal of inspiration from the image of the sculling boat. And as we uh, planned our comments for tonight, we thought, you know what, we've got a really big team here and we're all working to deliver better outcomes, have a better patient experience, deliver healthcare at a lower cost, and ultimately achieve shared savings. So what our team needs is equipment. We need to make sure we've got a good boat, good oars. We need to ensure we have carbohydrates in our belly so that we can row fast and furious. We need to ensure that we've trained well and we have the stamina to cross the finish line. So we've got a crew here, and it's such a beautiful sport to watch. Uh, Two of my sons are are rowers uh, right now. And when you see the strokes, In synchronization, when you see the blades at the exact same pitch, it's just beautiful to watch. However, if one of those rowers gets out of sync, the entire outcome for the boat changes. So Andy and I have created a VPP quad boat here, and uh, Janet Hallahan and Nicole Lamborn, you can correct me if I'm using the terminology uh, wrong. But we 've developed uh, eight strategies that align very much with what Donna and Dr. Blaber spoke about earlier and really have great applicability to our learnings over the past couple of years so we 're going to start here in the bow, and the responsibility of the bow, uh, the athlete in that seat, is to steer the boat, and what you can hear the bow doing as the boat goes across the river is you know power left, power right to Um, react to the changing environments in the river. We've put two critical components here in in our quad that will uh, steer us directly in the right area. We're starting with data exchange. In 2018, reflecting back on the performance that Tarun shared, we exclusively relied on claims data coming from the payers in a lagged fashion. What we worked on in 2019 is to create partnerships with other entities who can send us data in a more timely fashion so that we can react more swiftly. And we've got three agreements in place, one with the Camden Coalition HIE. That covers all the South Jersey hospitals. We have an arrangement with Health Information Exchange of Southeastern Pennsylvania. So when our patients go across the river, we know immediately that they're there. And we also have a new arrangement with CVS Pharmacy. We sent our first files this week. We're very excited to see what happens there. But you can see we have a wide variety of data. And what we do with that data when it arrives is we pass the information on to the primary care offices. And we're asking that the primary care offices engage quickly with those patients to ensure that they have the best outcome.
5: Uh, We're all going to go rowing after this, by the way. So I hope everybody's ready. Mm Um, so yeah, so I get to speak about what our primary care docs uh, see in their office. Um, and I want to put this in front of everybody so that we're all on the same page. So our primary care clinicians, their care coordinators, their QI leaders, see a report that comes out quarterly called our Gap in Attribution Workbook. And essentially, this is uh, a scorecard, for lack of a better word, as to how we are performing in each practice as the payer sees it. The issue is, it's wrong. It's not how we're performing. It's based off of claims data that's two to six months old, if accurate at that. So if a patient has Aetna insurance now, but two years ago they had Horizon insurance, Aetna doesn't know that the patient had a colonoscopy five years ago, so it'll show up red. The thing is, unless we, VPP, hear back from from our providers, that no, 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 this is wrong. It's right. And as a result, our quality measures don't change. So I know we did better than that slide that Tarun showed. But according to the payer, we didn't. In 2018, we, we crushed AmeriHealth. We were somewhere around 3 to 6% savings. But we can't distribute shared savings because of our quality performance, which wasn't true. So we rely on everybody in this room to help us close those gaps. Recently, we've started to engage some specialists in this, which is the true essence of a CIN, primary and specialty working together. So we've got radiology now helping us close mammograms. We've got GI helping us close colonoscopies. So we're well on our way. But the point is, we really need everybody to engage in this report in order to drive value forward. All right, so uh, another OR. Uh, which is near and dear to my heart is uh, network integrity and i, I think you heard uh, dr blaber and donna speak about this um it's pretty interesting stuff so currently 11 percent of virtua patients receive their inpatient care not in new jersey so roughly one in ten a little bit more than one out of ten and you know, in reflecting on this as a, as a family doc, I would think to myself, OK, well, these patients are the sickest of the sick, right? They're the, they're the patients that need advanced chemo and advanced transplant therapy. They're the patients that need services that we can provide. All right, so everybody got their phones ready? All right, give, it, give a second. We, we want to know what you think. All right, so the question is, and you'll see pop-ups here in a sec if, if we did this right. <laughs> of the 11% who go to New Jersey, I'm sorry, who go to Pennsylvania. What percentage of these have been called complex by the payer? And we'll give you a minute. 17%, 28%, 55%, or 83%? So we'll, 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 we'll fast forward it to the next slide. So 2 thirds of you had the right answer, which is really impressive. So think about this. Of the 11% that go across the bridge for their hospital care, only. are highly complex. That means that four out of five patients that go across the bridge for their hospital care are not high complex patients. They're low to moderate complexity. We're we're probably caring for more high um, high complex patients here than they are there uh, with regards to our patient population. So I mean, the whole point of a clinically integrated network is to clinically integrate. So if these patients aren't going over the bridge, Due to their complexity. Why are they going over the bridge? So you know I'd ask all of you to find one, two, three people that you don't know and meet each other and network with each other because if we can keep it in VPP, if we can keep it at Virtua, we're gonna hit shared savings on every single one of those contracts just doing this alone. We'll talk about all the other stuff but this is really the crux of, of everything. In addition, We put on that gap in attribution workbook that I was talking about earlier a column called Network Integrity. And network integrity, when we measure network integrity, network integrity that we measure is the total dollars that are leaving VPP, the total dollars that are leaving VPP. So of those total dollars, look at this, 57% network integrity. That's okay. So 57% of every dollar spent stays at VPP. That means that 43% leaves. Think about about everybody's revenue if we all had 43% more. Sounds pretty nice, right? So these patients don't need to leave the clinically integrated network. They do because we send them. They do because they demand it. And there's always going to be those patients that need to leave. But if we could keep half that number in VPP, just think about the impact that that would have on shared savings for all of us and for the patient's outcome Because we know we provide just as good quality, if not better. And we certainly do it at lower cost. Uh, This is our directory. So if you are not sure who's in our network, you can visit, shameless plug, (laughs) VirtuaPhysicianPartners.com. You'll see this right at the top. Feel free to click on there. It's kept up to date. You'll know at any point in time who's in the network, who's not. If it's your office staff that's really kind of guiding your patients as to where to go, please give this to your office staff. Please feel free to print it out. Please look at it early and often. And I'll turn it over to
4: Michelle. So, we've talked about timeliness of data, completeness of data, and one of our strategies to improve our position with quality data is to implement Healthy Planet. And earlier this year, our analytics team uh, launched that technology implementation. Wave one is about to start, and there are three components that will support our network with that first wave. The first being quality metrics management. So, all of those uh, items that you saw in Andy's Gap and Attribution workbook will be able to manage uh, through Healthy Planet. So, Healthy Planet will be available to both EPIC users and non EPIC users, primary care clinicians out in the community. We'll access Healthy Planet through the Virtua Physician Link portal. They'll be able to see how their practice is performing with all of, across all of the contracts within the quality measure section. And they'll have the ability to drill down to individual patients so that in the event this attention for nephropathy patient really had seen the mm-hmm. kidney dock, um, they could close that loop with us. And then we can dispute that gap with the pair. The second component is network integrity management, and we've already told you the benefits (laughs) of keeping things in the network. What network integrity will do, or this component of the system will do, is primary care physicians will be able to place an electronic request for referral through the Healthy Planet application. The specialist offices will receive notification. They'll coordinate and arrange for an appointment with the patient. And then they'll be able to communicate back to primary care to close the loop and to let the docs know about the outcome of that visit. What's most appealing, though, about this component of the system is that with this data, we'll be able to have healthy conversations between primary care and specialty care about access to care, um, service, and communication. And the final piece here is care coordination. The biggest uh, consumers of this particular piece of uh, the application will be the VPP care coordination team. Our nurses will begin to use new templates, especially built for them in the coming month. And then uh, across the EPIC system, all of the care coordinators in our organization will have access to see how those nurses are interacting with patients. And that, I think, in and of itself will create a positive patient experience in that there won't be three care coordinators calling that patient. There will be one.
5: All right. So we are um, we're halfway home, literally. Uh, I'm going to talk about some of the other ors here. Or number five is really the expanded care team. Um, and, and I want to echo something that uh, Donna Antonucci said earlier, which is that one of the advantages of a CIN, a CIN, is that. There are resources available to your practice that you may not have otherwise. But those resources are only as good as your use of those resources. And so I think this graph tells a nice little story. So um, what you'll see in blue is our ambulatory clinical pharmacy program. So let me just back up and say that in 2019, uh, VPP has launched two new clinical programs. Uh, One is an ambulatory clinical pharmacy program which really supports patients with regards to uh, advanced medication reconciliation, drug-to-drug interactions, drug-to-disease interactions, and really is, is, is honed at helping patients achieve measures of success for carrying the diseases that they have. So whether it's a heart failure patient and keeping that patient out of the ED, or a diabetic patient trying to get them to a goal A1C, when you're having some struggles doing that on your own, the pharmacy team can help. And there's clearly been a need for this in the community, if you look at this. Uh, Our docs, our care coordinators are utilizing this service and it's growing exponentially. So again, shameless plug for this free service. Uh, All you have to do is put it in Epic or send us an email and we'll forward it to the pharmacy team. And it's a great program. But if you look at the other program, equally as good, much less use. Now I think that there's much less use here because it's a little bit of a newer program. And we honestly have not advertised this program quite as much as the other program. But it's got great results. And the reason that I'm harping on it today is because I really want everybody to use this program. So this is a poorly controlled diabetic care coordination program. And the diabetic care coordination program is targeting patients who are not meeting an A1C of 9.0 or below, which is one of our quality measures. What a lot of data has shown is that it's the frequent touch points with these patients, rather than the degree of touch points with these patients, that drives the A1C down. So this program to date has really focused on our independent primary care docs, of which we don't have too many, which is why the N is very small. But still, of those 50 patients, we've seen an 8% reduction in A1C in one quarter. We recently showed this to the medical group, who, surprisingly, Loves the process, so or not surprisingly loves the process, I apologize. So they're going to have their care coordinators utilize this program, which has been clinician approved. In addition, we're going to continue to push this and hopefully roll it out to our specialists as well. One of our specialists, uh, Dr. Severis, I don't know if Dr. Severis is here, but um, one of our endocrinologists, Dr. Severis, has done something very similar over a longer period of time and has actually seen a 30% reduction in A1C through a very similar program. So he's recently started to refer patients into this program. So the reason that I'm harping on it is because I want it to be top of mind, not only for for everybody in this room, but for our care coordinators as well. The resources are only as good as our use of those resources. Um, And then lastly, for me, I wanted to focus on readmission prevention. And and we, VPP, have been talking about this for years. Um, You know, We know that if we can keep patients from being readmitted. We can drive shared savings. So real quick, we have been focused on a 14-day measure on readmissions, which means that if a patient sees any clinician in any care setting in the outpatient space, not even their primary, it meets our measure of success. And we're meeting that in 2019 as a goal. But if you look at our measure of success, which is 14 days, and you drill down on this, look at what happens if we, if we see that patient within seven days. I don't think this is surprising, but the data is pretty impressive. A mild increase in in our performance from 19.5% to 27% of patients discharged from a hospital who were seen within seven days drives the readmission rate down by over 50%. So please, while we're measuring at 14 days, try to get those patients in early and often. And maybe some of those patients aren't appropriate for seven-day follow-up, if it's a surgical case or if it's an OB case or whatever. That's why the target's not set at 80 90%. But look at what happens when we bring those patients in with regards to the readmission rate.
4: All righty. So the uh, last position in the boat, the last one across the finish line, is called the stroke. And what the stroke position does for the team is that they set the pace for the boat. We've identified two. Two interventions, two strategies that we believe will set our pace for shared savings. Uh, Donna and Dr. Blaber did a great job teeing up the very last one. The one we're going to talk about today is the one that Patty Schwartz, our fearful VPP quality director, led um, starting last year. So you may remember from last year's annual meeting that we identified, we shared with you that we identified a $10 per member per month cost saving opportunity related to avoidable ED visits. For those of you new to this uh, value-based world, what we consider to be an avoidable ED visit is um, uh, related to a condition that can be effectively managed in an outpatient office setting, things like otitis media, asthma, UTIs, URIs. Patty uh, identified a program that was really, really successful in Detroit in driving down avoidable ED visits. And beginning in January of this year, she engaged all of us (laughs) to work on four initiatives that would contribute to successful performance. We have implementing an access to care policy so that your employees and team members know what your expectation is related to bringing patients in the same day. We've got updating office hour telephone messages. We have making after-hours care a point of conversation. This is what we refer to as the avoidable ED toolkit. And now I finally get to do a polling question. What percentage of VPP ambulatory practices have reported that they've successfully implemented that toolkit? Is it A, 38%, B, 48 C, 74 or D94. And whoever's sitting next to Patty, don't look at her screen. (laughs) She knows (laughs) the answer. As of earlier this month, 94% of our practices have implemented that toolkit. And while that's exciting to report, what's even more exciting to report is what has happened to our performance when you implemented that change. Take a look at this. We have three contracts that regularly uh, report to us our performance in the measure. And you can see, between 2017, 18, and 19, we've seen a nice increase in the avoidable ED utilization. And we had originally set out our target focused on that Etna whole health population, because that was the only population we were managing when we identified the issue. We set a goal to reduce our rate by 10%, which would have been taking us from 109 to 98, at the uh, end of June, right? At the end of June, we were at 96. So give yourselves a round of applause. And uh, on behalf of our team, we thank you for engaging with us in this um, initiative. And I think this is a perfect example of what happens when we're all rowing in the same direction. And uh, I do encourage you to also extend our thanks to your team members back at the office tomorrow when you go back to report the good news. The second opportunity is related to post-acute, and Donna and Dr. Blaber teed this up very nicely. So, right now, we have four contracts with payers. Those are upside-only commercial contracts, and the average age of our patients in this population is 42 years. We know that in order to grow our covered lives, we're going to need to move into the Medicare space. we're not prepared to do that yet from the perspective of we have some post-acute work to take care of. And these are just two samples of uh, conditions at, one at each of our hospitals. Congestive heart failure at virtue of Voorhees. Uh, this is data from 2016. The readmission rate, the SNF utilization rate, and the SNF length of stay is all well above the top quartile performance group and it's even higher than the median. That yields a $6,500 cost savings opportunity per congestive heart failure case. That's a lot, of, a lot of dollars. For stroke at virtual memorial, we have the same readmission sniff rate <laughs> exposure and the length of stay is better. But if you're readmitting 21% of your patients, the care that's happening (laughs) at that um, facility may not be optimized. Um, That cost-saving opportunity is $13,000 per case. These are just two conditions. There are many other conditions. We've really got to tackle this. And Andy has really taken the bull by the horns. Earlier this summer, he engaged a large stakeholder group, including our new Lord's colleagues, who are sharing uh, their positive experience in this space. And uh, we've taken some great steps. So uh, earlier this month, the uh, steering committee engaged the uh, the participating uh, post-acute facility providers. They reset performance expectations and have created a process through which performance will be reviewed on a regular basis. The team is also open to considering participation requirements. So in order for a post-acute facility to be flagged as preferred, they might need to do something in order to, to, to win our trust. And wouldn't it wouldn't be fantastic if we required that every single one of those post-acute facilities contribute data to the health information exchange so that we know when patients are admitted and when they discharge. So there's tremendous opportunity here, and we're headed in the right direction.
5: All right, so we've, we've got a boat. Is it called a boat?
4: It's called a boat. Yeah, a we've shell? Got,
5: we've got a boat. Got a boat. Um, eight oars. And if we can execute on these oars, we're confident that we'll get to the finish line. We know that this is not rocket science. Like When you look up there, you're like, all right, th- we should be able to do this. But it's still hard. It's new. It's different. It's a change. And I think that you've heard that theme all night through that we have to start thinking differently if we're going to get different results. I know that's what happened on the LHN side, and clearly they've got the results to show for it. But we know that we can't do all of these at the exact same time. It'd be impossible. So everybody got their phones. What we want to know from you is which of these eight population health strategies do you think will have the greatest impact for us? And we'll give you a second here. We're just kind of curious to hear your pulse. There's excellent. So it looks like we've got a kind of a heavy bend on the network integrity side and the readmission side, and all the others are represented as well. I think that's a perfect answer. I mean, the truth is that there's really no right answer. Like I said, you know, we all have to be doing this at the exact same time, supporting each other with the goal of achieving shared savings and the best outcome for our patients. We know that we can do this, we know it's hard, but we wanted to give you a sneak peek of what that could look like if we all were rowing in the same direction at the same time in synchronicity.
0: After Andy and Michelle finished presenting on VPP's eight population health strategies for success, Jen Garofino, VPP's physician engagement consultant, presented the quality improvement leader of the year award for VPP to Carrie Rossi of Burlington County Orthopedics. The QI Leader of the Year Award was created to honor excellence and the sharing of best practices. There are three criteria that the award is based off of that Carrie met. The first is meeting citizenship and clinical quality measures. The second is voluntarily interacting with the VPP. And the third is the sharing of best practices with either another VPP office or the entire VPP network. So, congratulations to Carrie. Following the presentation of the QI Leader of the Year Award, Tarun addressed the room and thanked everyone who made the annual meeting possible, as well as those who make VPP possible.
1: So why don't we go ahead and um, transition to the final portion of the uh, program this evening here. And, um... You know, before I offer some closing thoughts, I just want to make sure uh, before I forget, uh there, In order to pull off a program like this, uh, it takes a tremendous amount of effort. So, first of all, uh, I want to say thank you. She's up here in front, uh, Nina Sofia, and the man, and the and the events team for putting on a, a magnificent event uh, and hosting us here. Thank you so much. <laughs> I don't see her, but I know uh, Marie Young from the um, from the catering services team is probably hard back. Uh, Putting all the rest of the stuff back. Her and a team put together a phenomenal meal together for us, so I want to thank them as well. And, and then um, the, the other the other thing is is that actually to run a clinically integrated network, you know, Andy, Michelle, and I get to spend a decent amount of time up here with a microphone or or, or you know in front of a, a presentation podium. But the reality of it is is that you know the work that we're presenting is actually the work that's done. By the people who are truly guiding us here at VPP, and, and you know a management team and support sport team cannot do it without um, with guidance and leadership from its uh, from its uh, clinicians so in in the audience tonight, I just want to just you know if I call you out, just if you could just stand up uh, to be acknowledged by your peers. Uh, Without a board of managers to strategically guide us, we wouldn't be able to to, to make these decisions and make some of the tough calls out there. So if, I know many of our board of manager uh, representation from both the independents, the employed group, and the health system are here tonight. So if you could just stand up and be acknowledged. Um, so the board of managers, so thank you. Also, um, It's not just the board of managers, there are numerous committees. There are four committees that report up into the board and numerous subcommittees. Uh, And these clinicians spend dozens upon dozens of hours uh, with us. So if if the members of all the committees and the work groups who uh, help us and guide us could also stand and be acknowledged. Thank you. All right. And the last piece of thanks is a lot of clinicians, a lot of great ideas, a lot of meetings, a lot of meals to clean up and donate. Uh, and that can happen without the day-to-day work of the team, of the actual VPP support team. So, and the, so will the VPP support team, the management team, the leadership team all stand up please and be recognized? But. We covered a bunch of critical topics tonight. right? We talked about, um, with our keynotes, uh, we talked about the vision that what the virtual system looks like coming together. Uh, Don Antonucci gave us some remarkable insights on the lessons learned from a, a CIN, who's now our sister CIN, and and their lessons learned uh, moving forward. Andy Michelle, I think, did a, just an outstanding job of of laying out a, a mechanism for us to move forward and and what to focus on, uh, and what we have to synchronize uh, to to move forward here. Uh, you know, last year. We for those of you who are attending, uh, you may have seen this slide here. And we talked about this slide a little bit, right? This was uh, We talked a little bit about it. it's very hard to know exactly what path to take forward when you do not have a very clear visualization of the end site. And we talked about the Jeff Immel quote, where he talks about if you take the first five steps into the fog, the next five steps become a little bit more clear, and certainly more clear than if you had never taken a step at all. Additionally. We talked about the Mark Twain quote, right, who implored us to, to strive for, for progress and to resist planning for perfection. So as you know, we continue to look forward into the fog, you know, there are some images that are starting to merge, to emerge, emerge in, in in this fog. Um, and I think there's one other I can I can offer for tonight uh, that will also further solidify some of the shape in the fog. And about a little over a month ago, board members from both Lord's Health Network, as well as virtual physician partners, got together to meet each other. And we sat down with the board members, and we asked for guidance. So what do you think this should look like? Should we keep our network separate? Should, what what do you think is the best way for us to move forward? And resoundingly, the two boards gave guidance that we will be better together as one clinically integrated network and we're gonna to have to figure out how to do that, but they want us to get that done by the end of 2020. So that in 2021, we are one network. So that means a tremendous lift on the management team, but also on the governance team to pull that off. But what's also I think very important is the tactics that we talked about tonight, how to move forward. We can't wait to execute on those, on Till the end of 2020, when we go live with the, with this new combination, we can't wait 12 months. We can't wait three months. It has to start now, right? The time. This is a call to action. The time for us to start executing on on these principles that we laid out has to happen now. You know, the reason we know it's an opportunity to, to go after it now is because the opportunity is there. Our patients, with all the data we're seeing, are telling us, I. I want to get my care in my community. The vast majority of time they want to get their care in the community. And the beautiful part now is in with this new model that we have of more access points and, and greater sophistication, we're able to deliver on all the aspects of the AAA. We can give high quality care, we've been giving high quality care and we can give more sophisticated care than ever before. We're known for our experience and we are cost competitive, we can compete with academic programs any day of the week here. The reality of it is, and I think Dr. Blaber did a wonderful job of of talking about this in a little bit more detail, is the pieces are all there. The question is, is do we have the appetite to actually do something different? It's not gonna happen by itself. And I'm gonna ask as you leave here tonight or enjoying a cup of coffee or driving home or driving into work tomorrow to reflect a little bit on on the message that we've discussed tonight. Because the step moving forward is not just going to be a cerebral exercise. We're going to have to commit to doing things differently. The time is now. I know some of the folks in the audience may say, listen, I really like the way I practice today. It works well for me. And my answer is going to be fully respectful. I completely concur concur with you. And if it works for you, you run a successful practice, by all means, you got to do what's right for you. But at the same time, I'm also going to very respectfully say we're a clinically integrated network, and we've laid out what the strategy is moving forward. And you have to decide if these strategies do not synchronize with your view of your practice, that's okay. We'll find ways to collaborate, but maybe it's just not through a CIN relationship. And so that's the question we're at right now. Are we going to do this? How are we going to move forward to do this? And so, you know, as I got an opportunity to you know, work with virtual physician partners and learn more about your practices over the last 18 months, I continue to you know, have an opportunity to realize the frustration that's in the practices today. We see another click, another form, another report. And what our pledge has to be back to you is for every click that we ask you to do, it's not to take one click away. We need to take two clicks away, five clicks away, 10 clicks away. Same thing with the forms. If I ask, we ask you to fill out one, we got to somehow take away five. But the leverage for us to pull that off with the insurers is based off of our performance. If we can show that we can do these things today, then when we sit down across the table from an insurer and say, you know what? Our clinicians are amazing at this. They don't abuse imaging studies we want a golden pass for the first 1,000 in the network. The answer is going to be, well, show me that you've done it before. Stop, if you say, hey, listen, we, we want to pass on the preauthorization for the medication. Yeah, sounds good. Show me you've done it before. And so what we have to do is success begets success. And success begets success only if we do things differently. So we're not going to land with a quote from either Immelt or from Mark Twain, Well, we're gonna finish with this one from uh, Stephen Covey, and uh, famous for Franklin Covey. And and clearly says to, to do the things we've never done before, we have to do things we've never done before. And so we certainly hope that that becomes the message that you think about. And if that is something that resonates with you and what you saw tonight about the strategies moving forward resonates with you, then we think there's such an amazing opportunity and we're gonna ask you to commit to making a difference in how you do things than to change things and do things differently. And actually, I'm going to be the first one to do that. Because right? I, too, have to do things differently in order to get an, another result. So I'm going to open up this. And I'm going to do the first one. All right? So I'm going to tell you what I'm going to commit to. Because right? I have to do things differently to expect a different result. And I'm going to wear a double hat. i got to do it both from a leadership perspective and a clinical perspective. I need to do a better job of getting out to your practices continue to learn more about what frustrations you're having, what are the resistance points, how can we better serve you. And clinically when I run with the residents I'm very proud of the fact that they do a very very good job of getting the notes out but I could also personally do a better job of making sure I either call, secure text, secure email you that your patient is being discharged. So that's my commitment and I'm gonna go ahead and put that in there right now by putting my name, no spaces, please. And let's see if it goes in there. All right, so I'm committing. So what we're going to ask you to do is pull out your phones, reflect for a moment of whether you feel you can commit to one or any of the things we talked about tonight. And if you can, please put your name or your practice name, no spaces, up there. And let's reflect for a moment. I'm taking a picture of that. Give yourself a round of applause. That's absolutely fantastic. And we'll keep it going and what we'll do is we'll photograph this and we'll send it out to you. So what I'd like to do is the last piece of the fog that we want to let you know about tonight is that it's one that's always blazingly clear, at least on the minds of the VPP team. And that is there is no clinically integrated network without the people who are in this room. And we cannot do it without you and your ongoing engagement and support. The upcoming year is gonna be challenging but they all seem to get more challenging. But I wanna make sure that you hear it loud and clear from all of us. Thank you for everything that you do for us. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your participation in BPP.
0: Thanks for listening to this special edition of One Other Thing, the official podcast of Virtua Physician Partners. Just to reiterate, if you want any of the slide deck materials that were referenced in this episode, just reach out to me at dmaster at virtua.org, and I'll get those over to you as soon as possible. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back soon to discuss One Other Thing.